Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our October 2016 issue. This month, we feature several articles from our Focus on Addiction special section. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Accessibility of mental health treatment has been a serious concern in the United States. In fact, about 80% of U.S. counties in 2008 were designated as mental health professional shortage areas. Using data from the National Surveys on Drug Use and Health, Han and colleagues looked at trends in the 12-month prevalence of receiving mental health treatments between 2008 and 2013. In this period, the 12-month prevalence of mental illness remained stable in adults in the U.S. and in each of the examined generational cohorts. Receipt of psychotropic medications without inpatient or outpatient treatment increased 23.8% in the overall adult population, 28.4% in baby boomers with mental illness, and 34.7% in members of Generation X with mental illness. Among older individuals in the silent generation, receipt of mental health treatments remained unchanged. The authors note that with the ongoing mental health parity and health reform efforts, further studies are warranted to monitor trends in mental health treatment in these populations. To date, no randomized placebo-controlled trials have been reported that evaluate the efficacy of atypical antipsychotic agents for the treatment of bipolar depression in older adults. In this Synovian-sponsored study, the authors report results from two post-hoc analyses on the efficacy and safety of lorazodone for the treatment of bipolar depression. Each study was a six-week, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial involving a total of 142 adults aged 55 years and older. In one study, lorazodone was administered as monotherapy. In the other, treatment with lorazodone was adjunctive with either lithium or valparate. The primary endpoint in both studies was mean change at week six in the Montgomery Asperg Depression Rating Scale score. As for efficacy, in the monotherapy study, treatment with lorazodone was associated with significant week six improvement in depressive symptoms with a fairly large effect size of 83%. In the adjunctive therapy study, week six improvement with lorazodone was not significant compared with placebo, adjunctive with lithium or valparate. As for safety, lorazodone was well tolerated. Discontinuation rates due to adverse events were similar for lorazodone and placebo in both the monotherapy and the adjunctive therapy studies. Lorazodone had minimal effects on weight and metabolic laboratory values. The authors conclude that monotherapy with lorazodone was an effective treatment for bipolar depression in older adults, while adjunctive therapy did not demonstrate efficacy. Both monotherapy and adjunctive therapy with lorazodone were safe and well-tolerated in this older adult sample. This article is freely available online. Please visit the October Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. The effects of direct-to-consumer advertising on patient and physician behavior are not well understood. To date, there has been only one systematic review conducted 10 years ago that studied these effects. 
To update our knowledge, two authors from Brown University performed a systematic review of the literature to determine how direct-to-consumer advertising affects patient requests for medication, as well as how it affects physician prescribing. Their work received funding support from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. In their review, the authors included studies that focused on or included psychiatric medication and measured patient or physician behavior at the point of service. Despite identifying almost 1,000 articles, only four studies met criteria. Using a well-established system, the authors rated their confidence in the findings across the four studies. The authors reached three conclusions about requests for advertised medication with a moderate level of confidence. One, such requests are granted in more than 50% of encounters. Two, the requests promote higher prescribing volume. And three, the requests have competing effects on treatment quality. The authors conclude that more methodologically strong studies are needed to better understand the effects of direct-to-consumer advertising on psychiatric medication. Intentional deception is a common act that often has detrimental social, legal, and clinical implications. In the last decade, brain activation patterns associated with deception have been mapped with functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, significantly expanding our theoretical understanding of the phenomenon. However, despite substantial criticism, polygraphy remains the only biological method of lie detection in use today. In this study, supported in part by the Army Research Office, the authors compared the accuracy of fMRI and polygraphy in the detection of concealed information. Twenty-eight participants secretly wrote down a number between three and eight on a slip of paper and were questioned about what number they wrote during consecutive and counterbalanced fMRI and polygraphy sessions. The concealed information test paradigm was used to evoke deceptive responses about the concealed number. Each participant's pre-processed fMRI images and polygraph data were independently evaluated by three fMRI experts and three polygraph experts who made an independent determination of the number the participant wrote down and concealed. FMRI experts were 24% more likely to detect the concealed number than the polygraphy experts. The authors conclude that further evaluation of FMRI as a potential alternative to polygraphy is warranted, and further that combined use of psychophysiology and neuroimaging in lie detection deserves new consideration. While doctors often increase the dose of an antipsychotic drug in cases of insufficient response, evidence is very limited as to whether such dose increase is better than continuing the same dose. In this month's CME offering, the authors of this article address this clinical question. In a four-week, double-blind, randomized controlled trial, 100 patients with schizophrenia who did not respond to olanzapine 10 milligrams per day or risperidone 3 milligrams per day were randomly allocated to a dose increment or dose continuation group. In the increment group, antipsychotic doses were doubled for four weeks, whereas in the continuation group, doses were not changed. Completion rate, response rate, changes in psychopathology, function, and extrapyramidal symptoms were compared between the groups.
the relationship between baseline plasma antipsychotic concentrations and changes in psychopathology was also examined. As a result, the completion rate was 69% in the increment group, which was significantly lower than 86% in the continuation group. Furthermore, no significant superiority was observed in any of the outcome measures in the increment group compared to the continuation group. On the other hand, those with lower plasma olanzapine concentrations in their initial treatment showed a greater improvement on the PANS positive subscale when their dose was increased. The authors conclude that patients with schizophrenia who fail to respond to moderate antipsychotic doses may not benefit from increasing the dose as a general strategy. However, the potential benefit of antipsychotic dose increase cannot be ruled out in those whose plasma antipsychotic concentrations are still low at baseline. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the October Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. The age at onset of bipolar disorder varies greatly in different countries. To examine why, Post and colleagues studied a sample of 979 outpatients with bipolar disorder from four sites in the United States and three in the Netherlands and Germany. The subjects completed a questionnaire about their demographics and age at onset of illness. They also provided family history of depression and bipolar disorder, alcohol and substance abuse, suicide attempts, and other illnesses in their parents, grandparents, and offspring. A high total amount of family history of different psychiatric illnesses in parents and grandparents was related to a significantly earlier age at onset of the patient's bipolar disorder. Early onset bipolar disorder was also associated with more psychiatric illness in the offspring of these patients, further suggesting transgenerational vulnerability. Other researchers suggested a cohort effect in which more recently born patients have an earlier age of onset of their disorder and the incidence of childhood onset bipolar disorder may be increasing. Early onset bipolar disorder therefore appears to have a strong familial basis and is related to the burden of psychiatric disorders in parents and grandparents. This genetic and familial vulnerability, along with a history of psychosocial stress and adversity in childhood, are two major risk factors of early-onset bipolar disorder. The authors emphasize a need for increased awareness of childhood-onset bipolar disorder, especially in the United States, where there is a greater loading of parental and grandparental psychiatric illness and childhood adversity than in Germany and the Netherlands. In a collaborative study sponsored by Janssen, researchers compared healthcare resource utilization and costs among veterans aged 18 years or older with schizophrenia who initiated treatment with oral antipsychotics and with paliperidone palmitate, a once-monthly atypical long-acting injectable antipsychotic. Data from the Veterans Health Administration on over 10,000 patients were used to assess treatment patterns, resource utilization, costs, and socioeconomic outcomes. After adjustment for baseline demographic and clinical confounders, paliperidone palmitate was associated with significantly less frequent all-cause hospitalization and lower total health care costs compared to oral atypical antipsychotics. 
In addition, findings indicated that paliperidone palmitate is associated with improvements in adherence, a greater number of outpatient visits, and improved economic standing among veterans with schizophrenia. A sensitivity analysis was conducted based on participation in mental health intensive case management, and the results suggested that greater participation in this program may have contributed to the observed cost differences. The authors conclude that paliperidone palmitate has the potential to reduce health care costs compared to oral therapy. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the October Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. Researchers have known that heroin craving is associated with a high probability of relapse and that the default mode network is generally involved in heroin addiction. But the correlates between the function of the default mode network in the resting state and basal craving for heroin in heroin addicts remains unknown. In this government-funded study, 24 heroin-dependent men and 20 healthy control male subjects participated in a program of resting state functional MRI. The researchers evaluated basal heroin craving in the heroin-dependent group. The default mode networks were identified by group-independent component analysis. Differences in functional connectivity between groups were analyzed. The researchers also examined the relationship between functional connectivity in the default mode network and basal heroin craving in the heroin-dependent group. Study results showed that in the heroin-dependent group, the functional connectivity within the anterior network of the default mode network decreased significantly and that the decrease in functional connectivity was associated with basal craving. The authors conclude that in the abnormal functional connectivity in the anterior subnetwork of the default mode network may serve as neural underpinnings for the mechanism of heroin addiction. In this study, sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health, researchers evaluated the effects of a modest restriction of nightly sleep time on antidepressant treatment response. 68 adults with depression received eight weeks of the antidepressant fluoxetine and were randomly assigned to one of three time-in-bed conditions during the first two weeks of therapy. One group was assigned to eight hours time in bed. Another was assigned to six hours time in bed with a two-hour bedtime delay. And the third group was assigned to six hours time in bed with a two-hour advance of rise time. Clinicians who were unaware of study condition interviewed subjects weekly and rated their depression severity. The results indicated that depression symptoms improved more in subjects who were assigned to the 8-hour compared to the 6-hour time-in-bed condition. At the end of 8 weeks, 63% of subjects in the 8-hour time-in-bed group were in remission from depression compared to only 32% of the 6-hour time-in-bed group. The onset of remission also occurred about one week earlier in eight-hour time-in-bed subjects after just more than six weeks. The six-hour time-in-bed group did not achieve remission until after seven weeks. The authors conclude that restricting time in bed when beginning antidepressant therapy can negatively affect treatment response. They urge clinicians to caution patients from reducing their time in bed when initiating a new antidepressant medication. 
Polyunsaturated fatty acids come from the diet and from synthesis in the liver. They are important as part of the membranes of the brain, and many members of the polyunsaturated fatty acid metabolism cascade are key molecules in cell signaling. In this review, funded by the National Institutes of Health, the authors examined studies of polyunsaturated fatty acid levels that have shown some difference in levels and metabolism between bipolar patients and controls. However, the studies vary in how that difference is manifest. The authors found that open-label treatment studies have shown treatment efficacy but most individual double-blind randomized controlled trials have shown no treatment efficacy. One meta-analysis did show treatment efficacy for omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids in the treatment of depression. The authors recommend further investigation into the biology of the polyunsaturated fatty acid system as the effect of diet on biological levels may inform the further study of these treatments. Currently, there is an absence of empirically supported treatments for patients with co-occurring chronic pain and opioid use disorder. One potentially fruitful yet neglected clinical target involves comorbid psychopathology. In this four-year study funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, trained and supervised clinicians conducted structured clinical interviews with nearly 200 consecutive participants entering a treatment research program for co-occurring chronic pain and opioid use disorder. 75% of participants met criteria for current comorbid axis 1 disorder and 91% met criteria for lifetime comorbidity. Between 52% and 78% of participants met criteria for lifetime anxiety, mood, and non-opioid substance use disorders, while between 34% and 48% met current criteria for these diagnostic categories. Common current anxiety diagnoses were post-traumatic stress disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, and panic disorder without agoraphobia. Common current mood diagnoses were major depressive disorder and dysthymia. A little over half of the patients had a personality disorder. The high rates of persistence of co-occurring psychiatric disorders, including anxiety or mood disorders, suggest important clinical targets in the development of treatment approaches for patients with co-occurring chronic pain and opioid use disorder. An integrated approach that also addresses psychiatric disorders may be particularly beneficial for these individuals, as psychiatric treatment or use of available mental health treatment in this group is low. Poor sleep can hinder response to depression treatments, but empirically tested strategies for treating depressed patients with insomnia are lacking. The authors of the present study examined results of a randomized controlled trial designed to evaluate the efficacy of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, or CBTI. In the trial, CBTI was compared to a control insomnia therapy as a strategy for improving sleep and depression outcomes among patients with comorbid insomnia disorder and major depressive disorder. The researchers found that CBTI was superior to control insomnia therapy in improving insomnia severity. The proportion of participants who achieved depression remission was 43% for those assigned to CBTI and 36% for those assigned to the control. 
The difference was not statistically significant. However, improvements in insomnia at week six mediated eventual remission from depression. This finding suggests that insomnia is an important factor to address in the management of major depressive disorder. The study was supported by grants from the National Institute of Health, and the study medications were donated by Wyeth Pharmaceuticals and Forest Laboratories. Psychiatric diagnoses were developed and have evolved over time to inform prognosis and to align patients with appropriate treatments and resources. However, little is known about whether diagnosis is correlated with disability and functioning or with the frequency of emergency services use in psychiatric hospitals. To learn more about this, researchers from Canada examined survey data on 420 patients from a psychiatric hospital emergency department. Results showed that, compared to the general population, psychiatric emergency patients were more likely to be men, younger in age, never married, and unemployed or a student. Also, disability and functioning of psychiatric emergency patients were highly variable within, but not between, diagnostic categories. The authors recommend the use of disability and functioning data in addition to diagnosis data as a clinical tool in psychiatric emergency departments. As psychiatric emergency patients are demographically different from the general population, these data may aid in triaging patients and aligning them with the appropriate intensity of care and resources. The authors conclude that data on disability and functioning should be collected for this unique population to more accurately align patients with the appropriate intensity of services. Funding support for this study was provided by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, Canada. Let's pause briefly to learn about one of the latest online CME activities from our CME Institute and about a new supplement to the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this issue, we highlight the following CME activity. What steps should be taken when your patient doesn't respond adequately to antidepressant medication and has symptoms that may indicate the presence of several diagnoses? Explore this CME case and comment, supported by an educational grant from Otsuka, to analyze the case of Melissa, an architect whose treatment-resistant depression may be masking other diagnoses. Effective management of schizophrenia symptoms remains a problem in a large number of patients, as relapse often occurs due to lapses in medication adherence. Long-acting injectable antipsychotics may be an important option to address this issue. A group of eight experts recently met to develop a set of recommendations regarding long-acting injectable medications. You can read these recommendations, which cover clinical use, education, and research needs in a special supplement to the journal published this month. Supplement 3 is freely available online. Just visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com and enter LAI into the keyword search. And now let's continue with more selections of important research and reviews from the October issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In a study from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, new data from the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions 3 provide the first estimates of DSM-5 nicotine use disorders in the United States. 
Results show the current prevalence to be about 20%. Rates of DSM-5 nicotine use disorder are greater among men, non-Hispanic whites, younger adults, and those not currently married with less education and lower incomes. DSM-5 nicotine use disorder is associated with other substance use and mood, anxiety, and personality disorders. The authors note that their findings of substantial comorbidity of nicotine use disorder and low rates of treatment underscore the importance of the identification of and intervention for nicotine-using individuals. These findings will aid clinicians in primary care, specialty substance abuse, and mental health settings. Neurofeedback has been proposed as a promising non-pharmacological intervention for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. However, the efficacy of neurofeedback as a treatment for ADHD and whether it is a viable alternative for stimulant medication is still an intensely debated subject. In a randomized controlled trial, researchers from the Netherlands evaluated the effects of neurofeedback in children with ADHD by comparing the behavioral effects to optimally titrated methylphenidate and a semi-active intervention of physical activity. The semi-active control group was applied to account for effects such as parental engagement and personal attention. This study was supported with funding from the Netherlands Organization for Health Research and Development. Children with a DSM-4-TR diagnosis of ADHD, age 7 to 13 years old, were randomly assigned to receive one of three interventions over 10 to 12 weeks. 39 children were allocated to neurofeedback theta-beta training on the vertex. 37 children were assigned to the physical activity intervention to perform moderate to vigorous intensity exercises. And 36 children participated in a double-blind, placebo-controlled crossover titration procedure to determine an optimal dose of methylphenidate. The neurofeedback and physical activity interventions were balanced in terms of the number and duration of sessions. At post-intervention, irrespective of the intervention received, parents reported an improvement in hyperactivity and impulsivity. However, children who received methylphenidate improved more in attentive behavior compared to those assigned to neurofeedback or physical activity. Teachers reported improved attention and a decrease in hyperactive and impulsive behavior for methylphenidate, but not for neurofeedback or physical activity. The authors conclude that optimally titrated methylphenidate is superior to neurofeedback and physical activity in decreasing symptoms in children with ADHD. Even before the late David Sackett of evidence-based medicine fame made compliance a valid midline term in the mid-1970s, this term has been a constant source of concern and struggle for mental health practitioners and their patients. In the present study, the authors wish to go beyond conventional models of compliance and adherence, which tend to stick to more or less exhaustive studies of demographic factors. To do this, they approach this problem from a socio-cognitive perspective, which is a novel methodology in this field. They wanted to know how adherence to medication was influenced by the belief of patients regarding who or what controls their medications. Also, how is this belief mediated by their ability to succeed at a protracted task and by their perception of their behavioral freedom? 
The study sample consisted of a large number of psychiatric patients with a variety of diagnoses who attended several community mental health centers. The authors found that patients who do not feel pressured to accept a certain view and who believe that they can accomplish the challenge of managing their illness tend to adhere to the treatment best. This perception appears to be mediated by their balanced perspective of who controls their treatment. In an era of patient-centered care, this study highlights the necessity to know what patients want and how to empower them. Although current knowledge holds that methamphetamine exposure might be associated with cardiovascular and cerebrovascular complications, the information supporting this perception has been based on information mainly from case reports, case series, post-mortem studies, and cross-sectional design-based research. Long-term observation of a large number of methamphetamine users has not been conducted. To address this knowledge gap, the authors of this article investigated the risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke events in methamphetamine users by following them for 10 to 14 years. The government-funded study was conducted in Taiwan using the nationwide Psychiatric Medical Claims Database. 1,300 inpatients who were methamphetamine users were recruited. The authors matched this cohort with a comparison group at a ratio of 1 to 4 through a statistical method called propensity score matching. All subjects in both groups were then monitored for at least a decade for the occurrence of cardiovascular disease or stroke events. The researchers found that nearly half of the methamphetamine users were younger than 30 years. When the two groups were compared, they found that the methamphetamine cohort had higher incidences of cardiovascular diseases and stroke events, particularly arrhythmia and hemorrhagic stroke. Interestingly, when the authors stratified the sample by the age of 30, they found the risk of cardiovascular sequela was more significant in younger methamphetamine users, whereas the risk of stroke events was higher in older users. The authors conclude that methamphetamine use is significantly associated with a long-term risk of cardiovascular and cerebrovascular complications. They also note that age appears to be an effect modifier for the risk estimation. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, are often used as a first-line treatment for major depressive disorder, but their impact on suicidal ideation is equivocal. A black box warning for treating children and young adults with SSRIs persists, and initiation of SSRI treatment is recognized as a high-risk time for suicidal ideation. However, SSRIs are thought to have a protective benefit in suicidal ideation later in treatment. The authors of this study, therefore, sought to explore the emergence and worsening of suicidal ideation in patients treated with citalopram. With funding support from the National Institutes of Health and the National Institute of Mental Health, the authors used data from the STAR-D trial, including 3,620 subjects from 18 primary care centers and 23 psychiatric clinical sites throughout the United States. In this secondary analysis, they analyzed baseline predictors of the emergence and worsening of suicidal ideation via survival analyses and receiver operating characteristic analyses.
Suicidal ideation was more likely to occur early in citalopram treatment. Few subjects showed emergence or worsening occurring after six weeks. Being Hispanic, taking sedative medications, increased depression severity, absence of hypersomnia, and cardiac comorbidity were significantly associated with greater likelihood of an emergence of suicidal ideation in patients without suicidal ideation at baseline. Being widowed, better work performance, weight loss at baseline, and the presence of vascular or neurologic comorbidities were associated with a greater likelihood of worsening of suicidal ideation. The authors conclude that taking a sedative and having a medical comorbidity are predictive of emergence or worsening of suicidal ideation. They urge clinicians to be aware that emergence or worsening of suicidal ideation is most common in the first few weeks of citalopram treatment initiation and less likely after six weeks of treatment. Many people suffering from major depressive disorder receive inadequate psychiatric treatment, and this so-called treatment gap disproportionately affects minorities. In particular, Chinese immigrants underutilize mental health services more than almost any other racial or ethnic group. One of the largest barriers to seeking care for this population is the significant shame and stigma surrounding psychiatric illnesses. A study supported in part by Harvard Medical School and the National Institute of Mental Health asked the question, what is the impact of stigmatizing beliefs on depression outcomes in an immigrant Chinese population? 190 Chinese immigrants with major depressive disorder were enrolled in a prospective trial of culturally sensitive collaborative care for depression. Participants' self-reported stigma regarding their symptoms was quantified at study entry, and depressive symptoms were assessed over time using the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. Results suggest that more stigmatizing beliefs at baseline were associated with attenuated improvement in both Hamilton Depression Rating Scale score and quality of life at six months. Although the effect size was small, the fact that perceived stigma at a baseline visit significantly predicted change in Hamilton Depression Rating Scale score six months later is a striking result. The authors encourage clinicians to be aware that addressing stigma among depressed immigrant patients may improve treatment response. Patients presenting in later adult life with behavioral change consisting of apathy, disinhibition, or compulsive or stereotypical behavior have a broad differential diagnosis. Misdiagnosis is common in these patients due to an overlap of symptoms and lack of specific biomarkers. The differential diagnosis between behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia and psychiatric disorders is especially challenging. This privately sponsored study analyzed 91 patients presenting with late-onset frontal lobe syndrome. 41 of the analyzed patients had symptoms that were of psychiatric origin. 50 had possible or probable behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. Logistic regression analysis found that a positive history of psychiatric illness, male gender, relative absence of stereotypical symptoms, and presence of depressive symptoms were predictive of psychiatric disorders. 
These combined variables explain 65% of the variance in diagnosis of psychiatric disorder versus behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. Regarding symptoms, verbal apraxia or aphasia and impulsivity were predictive of behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia, whereas irritability was predictive of psychiatric disorders. The authors conclude that in daily clinical practice, specific subtyping of clinical symptoms in patients with late-onset frontal lobe syndrome may aid in differentiating patients with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia from those with psychiatric disorders and may provide guidance in patient management. Studies have shown that a third of patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, also experience tics. Researchers have also suggested that patients with tic-related OCD may have a different clinical presentation than OCD patients who do not experience tics. Others further propose that tic-related OCD runs an unfavorable course. The authors of this article report results from a Dutch multicenter cohort study supported in part by the Dutch government. The study included over 400 adult patients with OCD from whom longitudinal data were collected. In this cohort, the researchers made a cross-sectional comparison between tick-free and tick-related OCD on various clinical measures. Next, they used linear mixed model analyses to determine whether any differences occurred in OCD severity between the two groups after two years of follow-up. Several differences were found between tick-free and tick-related OCD. Patients with tick-related OCD showed more comorbid traits with other neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Also, patients with tick-related OCD had an earlier disease onset, were more often men, and more often suffered from symmetry behavior. OCD severity, depression, and anxiety were similar between groups. The natural two-year course for both groups was also similar and did not change after correction for possible confounding factors. The authors conclude that tick-related OCD may indeed be a relevant subtype and that clinicians should pay attention to possible comorbidity with other neurodevelopmental disorders. Furthermore, they determined that tick-relatedness does not influence the two-year prognosis in adult patients with OCD. Obesity, inflammation, and decreased neuropeptide Y are risk factors for depression. Since dipeptidylpeptidase 4, or DPP4, a newly identified adipokine, has been proven to promote inflammation and neuropeptide Y degradation, researchers in China aim to investigate the association between plasma DPP4 activities and depression symptoms in middle-aged and older adults. This study, funded by grants from government and science institutions in China, provides the first evidence that increased DPP-4 activity accompanied by enhanced inflammation and decreased neuropeptide Y levels in the plasma is independently and positively associated with scores on the nine-item patient health questionnaire and depression symptoms in middle-aged and older adults. 
From a clinical perspective, the researchers speculate that the underlying mechanisms may be partly explained by mutual influence between inflammation, neuropeptide Y, and DPP-4. Moreover, independent of the mechanism, elevated DPP-4 activity in adults could be a novel biomarker to assess the risk of depression. In addition, if further studies support the speculation that increased DPP-4 activity increases the risk of depression, DPP-4 activity might serve as a suitable therapeutic target for the prevention and treatment of depression. It is unknown what impact psychiatric illness has upon driving safety. In this study, the authors followed approximately 23,000 patients to determine the impact of a physician warning upon the patient's risk of having a motor vehicle crash. The study included patients who had been diagnosed with mood disorders, substance use disorders, personality disorders, and schizophrenia, and who had been warned by their physician about their risk of driving. The authors were able to track this group of patients by comparing licensing authority records in which an official warning had been reported by the physician. Results show that in the year following a warning, patients' risk of being involved in a crash decreased by about one-third. The study also found that after a warning, patients' risk of psychiatric hospitalization doubled. The risk of involvement of psychiatric patients in crashes was substantially higher than the general population, both before and after the warning. The authors conclude that physician warnings are an effective intervention for reducing road trauma, but need to be weighed against potential adverse psychiatric health. Children and adolescents who are exposed to antipsychotics are at increased risk of weight gain and metabolic dysregulation. In this month's clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at the evidence regarding the potential utility of metformin for weight loss in these patients. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the October Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the October issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Just go to the JCP website at psychiatrist.com to view the table of contents or enter October into the keyword search. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.